loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming three guests. Let me tell you a little about each of them. Kim Hooper is the author of five novels, People Who Knew Me, Cherry Blossoms, Tiny, All the Acorns on the Forest Floor, and No Hiding in Boise. She's the co-author of All the Love, Healing Your Heart and Finding Meaning After Pregnancy Loss. That's the book we'll mostly be talking about today. She lives in Southern California with her husband, daughter, and a collection of pets. Meredith Resnick worked in healthcare for two decades and maintains a strong interest in healing through the expressive arts. Her creative nonfiction has appeared in the Washington Post, JAMA, Psychology Today, Los Angeles Times, Newsweek, Motherwell, and others. This is her first book, All the Love, Healing Your Heart and Finding Meaning After Pregnancy Loss. Dr. Hong Depp is a board-certified psychologist and has provided clinical services, assessments, and international trainings and consultations for over 10 years. She's passionate about the intersection of gender, language, and culture, and is an ally to the LGBTQ plus community. Welcome to all of you, and I'll let you each say a little more about the part you've played in this quite wonderful book. What an incredible resource you've created. Um, I'll, I'll say just to start with that what I especially appreciated about it was um, the blending of information with personal experience. Um, I, I don't find I can take in information very well without the personal. So <laughs> that really spoke to me a lot. And I, and I uh, want to thank you for that. But could you each say a bit about what you contributed to the book and how you came to be a part of it? Why don't we start with you, Kim? Yeah, I'll start. Um, So like you said, I've written novels and I mean, fiction has always been my, my first love. But when I went through my losses, I had a total of four pregnancy losses um, before having my daughter. And um, I just felt so rocked to my core by the losses that I just, knew I needed to write about it. So, um, like you said, like, I think there's value in memoir and I read a lot of memoirs, um, related to pregnancy and baby loss when I was going through my own grief. But I also felt like I wanted like a therapist on my shoulder to kind of help me make sense of what I was going through as I was going through it. So that's kind of what we are trying to get with the book is a balance of, like you said, the personal story. So it's my personal story of my four losses um, balanced with insights from Meredith and Hong um, to kind of help clarify or validate or make sense of, you know, the more psychological, emotional trauma that can occur with loss. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, that's the short summary. <laughs> you know, I, I- I want to say as a grief grief counselor, I feel as if some days I feel as if 90% of what I do is tell people that what they're going through is normal. Yes. (laughs) I just just feel as if, you know, they want someone who knows something who's, 
an expert, I guess, to, to say, oh, yeah, that's I've heard that a lot. You know, I've I've known a lot of people to experience that that comes along with the territory, whatever it is. So it's interesting that you particularly wanted that and then created this book that includes that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think with pregnancy loss and probably with any any kind of loss, there's just such an avalanche of feeling. And it's easy to doubt, you know, am I supposed to be feeling this or, you know, why was I okay yesterday and today I'm a mess. And so it is very helpful to kind of have people that have studied this and are, you know, more professionals to kind of explain that and um, make sense of all of it. And, and Meredith, let's, let's go to you next. How did you get involved in the pro project? And um, I should, I should tell people maybe that, um, each of you um, are labeled in the book, and you all have very distinct voices. And I, I thought that was an interesting way to go about it. You each had your kind of gear in it. But uh, talk a little about your part in it and, and how you came to do it. Yeah. Um, well, Kim and I, I've known Kim for, I think, more than 10 years now. And when she was going through her losses, this went on for, oh, a good five years, I think. Um, we would correspond and text and talk on the phone. And when we'd meet for lunch, we'd speak about it. And over time, I, I think Kim, correct me if I'm wrong, but Kim started to write about it, trying to kind of feel her way through the nonfiction writing. And it sort of evolved through our texts and calls and meetings that, um, some of how I would respond to her, hey, that might work in a book. So that coupled with research and kind of synthesizing that friendship and the clinical work and research, I, I had worked in hospice and I've worked with um, really age groups from very young to older adults. Um, we sort of kind of mapped out this book um, that sort of evolved over time. And I would say that my voice is, is kind of as a friend, but also someone with that clinical insight um, about the stages of grief, about loss, um, normalizing it, how natural it is, being a witness to it. So. A very informed friend, if <laughs> I guess I would say. <laughs> but there is a warm quality to all of your contributions to the book and very human quality, and I appreciate that as well. Last but not least, Hong, how did you get involved, and, and what? how do you see your contribution? Yeah, um, I um, was asked to um, join as a kind of later contributor um, because I think um, both Kim and Meredith really wanted to kind of round out um, the book in terms of really bringing in diverse voices, um, especially since my expertise is um, and specialty is working with the BIPOC um, and queer communities um, at the intersection of also pregnancy loss. So you can imagine it's a marginalized community within another marginalized community. Um, and I, so I don't I, have to imagine I'm in that community. Okay. <laughs> yes, there you go. Yes, and you know, sometimes it can be very lonely. And so I think for my clients um, really appreciate that 
um, in terms of uh, my perspective and my lens and my social justice um, advocacy, you know, work. Um, and so I think, you know, both Kim and Meredith and I are, are really believe in amplifying um, voices that maybe a lot of times aren't able to speak up or they don't have an opportunity to to sit, at, have a seat at the table, to even have a chance to lean in, let's say. Um, and so I think it, for me, it was very special um, to be able to amplify, you know, certain communities and um, certain voices that also experience pregnancy loss and in addition experience additional layers of shame and stress and trauma and oppression um, due to other intersectional factors uh, on top of just, you know, the pain of, of pregnancy loss, which I, I totally agree with you, you know, Shira, I think so much of my work is always reminding my clients that they're having a very normal reaction to an abnormal event. So, you know, I, I had my first child as a as a lesbian in 1980. And I, I was trying to imagine as I was reading, just just tagging on to what you're saying about marginalized communities. I was trying to imagine how it would have been for me if I had lost that pregnancy. Um, because it's changed some, There's, there, but there was a radical assumption that we wouldn't be parents at that time. Mm-hmm. I was sort of a, a vanguard. And so it was already queer. <laughs> and I mean that in both senses of the word. So I imagine it would have been incredibly isolating. Uh, I don't know, no person that I knew at that time. And I know a lot of people who were having kids, we found each other, right? Not a lot, like eight. <laughs> uh, before the internet too. Yeah. Um, but nobody ever mentioned having pregnancy loss before the time when we were all pregnant together, but it must have happened, right? <laughs> so then um, that, that came to my mind. And then second of all, just the whole, um, you know, my wife was not diagnosed for a year and a half because she was black uh, mm-hmm. with the cancer that she died of. Uh, mm-hmm. A doctor admitted to her that the reason she couldn't get an x-ray is that people thought she was malig- malingering when actually she had um, terminal cancer, right? So it's not even just being marginalized. It's also being (laughs) ill-treated that I I also pulled out of the book for sure, that that really, really affects your experience and people who lose their life or lose their baby because nobody takes what they're saying seriously and all those kinds of issues. Do you encounter that as well? Definitely. Um, Definitely. And I'm so, yeah. And I'm so sorry for, you know, your loss, Cheryl, and, you know, everything that you and your family, you know, have been through and that I think it is, I think we're, racial trauma is obviously not new. I think it's just something that people are starting to talk about, you know, more, um, and um, I think it is, it's so many compounding layers upon layers and how do we even really tease apart um, and begin to heal and grieve if um, folks in communities and you know the people who are supposed to take care of us, right? Are not taking care of us and naming it 
for, for what it is, because like we know that to truly begin the healing process, you have to name the emotion, you have to name the experience and to be seen and validated. And so if you don't have that, that doesn't happen, then it's just, it, it gets cloaked in secrecy and then shame, right? And then that just further perpetuates the trauma as well. So I definitely, you know, in my office or now Zoom office, it's holding a lot of space for my clients and, and just being the person that says, I see you and I see mm-hmm. that you're hurting and I see the different injustices that have um, been perpetuated and continually um, inflicted upon you over the years. And so how do we stop that now and how can we empower you and how can we develop that resiliency even within a continued broken system? Mm, absolutely. There's actually a study that just came out today that said that black women are 40% more likely to lose a pregnancy um, than white women, which I just think is horrific. I mean, and it just shows exactly what you're talking about with the disparities that are in the healthcare system. And um, I mean, stats like that just don't lie. Um, and, right. you know, and I, I already, I mean, I guess we can't say, classically speaking, women are marginalized, but the differences in healthcare between men and women are obvious just on the, on the, on the surface level, right? And then when we're talking about a, uh, something that, that affects women's bodies, um, I think that must affect every woman who goes through what you did, Kim. How did you, I know you talked some in the book. Can you share some about what it was like intersecting with the medical community since we're kind of on that subject? Yeah, um, I mean, I think it definitely opened my eyes to, like you said, to some of the things that women have to struggle with in healthcare to get the attention that they need. Um, I had a lot of, I mean, I have several stories of medical just, mismanagement or just poor treatment. Um, and I can't say for certain if it's related to, uh, you know, me being a woman or not, but I, I do think across the board that women's health does not get the attention it deserves. I, I think women are kind of encouraged to be quiet about the things in their bodies that are ugly or, uh, you know, quote unquote gross. Um, there's just not a lot. We, a big thing with this book that we, we try to call attention to is that the real need for support infrastructure, like mental health specialists in this, in this category, um, medical doctors who know um, how to comfort and offer support to women who are going through this. Um, there's just no support infrastructure there. Um, I, I think with me personally and my losses, I kind of felt like, well, I had an OB who was my doctor. So then when I lost my pregnancies, was he still my doctor? Like, I felt like when I called the office, it was kind of like, you know, I don't know if this amount of blood is normal. And, you know, I kind of felt like a bother, you know, takes them hours to get back to you. They're kind of like, yes, it's normal, even though they haven't well, seen anything. Well, hours, that's better than lots of stories I hear. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I, I just, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and with this topic in particular, I think there's just in the medical community, not a lot of warmth that goes toward women. I mean, just some of the language that's used, like when I lost my son in the second trimester, I was really adamant about um, finding out why, because it was just so strange. Um, And 
I was told after that day that the quote unquote products of conception were lost at the laboratory. And I just felt, and I just said, you mean my baby? Like products of conception. Yeah. Like something you buy at Walgreens with the condoms or something. Like it just like it, they make it sound like this. Yeah. So, um, I likened it a bit as I was reading, I've worked a lot in the cancer community Mm -hmm. And um, some of the ways that people, uh, that medical professionals interact with people with cancer has a similar cold and clinical um, (laughs) voice that is totally unhelpful when people are going through something so emotional. Right. And Uh, I think doctors in general kind of struggle with bedside manner. Some are better than others, obviously, but um, it seems like there's certain groups that need a little more hand-holding. Absolutely. But, of course, the other factor is doctors, a lot of doctors become doctors because they want to fix bodies. Mm-hmm. And when they can't, they're kind of out of out of options. Some, I, yeah. I, I, I don't want to say all. I know many incredible practitioners. Yes. Um, but just that's something that can happen and sounds like it did somewhat when you and, were going yeah. through it. And I think it's hard for doctors too, because pregnancy loss is, you know, common. Um, it's something they see so often. And I think they're desensitized to it and they don't really realize how emotionally traumatic it can be for the individual person. Um, so for them, they're looking at it as like, oh, there was probably a chromosomal issue. No big deal. Move on. To them, it's nothing. As if, as if you should be relieved or something. Yes. Instead yeah. of grieving. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So I think, I think that's a little bit of the the problem too is they're just disconnected from um, the emotional component of it for the patients. Well, maybe we could also say that's that's true of the general society we live in as well. Yes. That <laughs> as soon as there's any kind of grief, you know, but um, maybe particularly a disenfranchised grief, which I think pregnancy loss qualifies, you know, yep. um, there's kind of a hop to this is nothing move move on um, yes exactly no pregnant person i've known has felt like their pregnancy is nothing oh yeah there and there's definitely a rush to move people along through the grief process time for our first break already so uh let's let's cut away and we'll come back and talk more in a few minutes listeners you'll find links to my website and social media at the good grief page at voice america You can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter. There's a link to my novel on my webpage. And to find the book and my guests, you can go to kimhooperwrites.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. 
Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Kim Hooper. Meredith Resnick and Hong Depp about their book, All the Love, Healing Your Heart and Finding Meaning After Pregnancy Loss. And I was just mentioning while we were on the break that uh, one thing I very much appreciated is that um, I'm a person who in grief can't read anything long. Um, And your book is long, but it's as if each chapter is a little book. (laughs) You know, they're so discreet. Um, was that intentional to kind of um, make make it so that someone could go to whatever subject called them and just read something fairly short about that? Did you yeah. intend that? Yeah, I mean, mostly because, like you said, I mean, during grief, it's kind of hard. Like you're you have monkey brain and you're kind of all over the place, and you know, we kind of wanted something where that's why we have a really detailed table of contents so people can find something that resonates with their situation or what they're feeling on that day or something they're struggling with. Um, so they can jump to that particular section and the sections themselves are extremely short. It's, it's usually like an entry from me about my personal experience related to something. And then Meredith and or Hong weigh in on that little topic. And then you can close the book for the day. Um, so, or go to another section and you can jump around. There's, you know, um, we wanted it to be super user-friendly. I guess the other thing that stands out is um, I, I can't imagine how I would have gotten through my 10 years of caregiving and living with a dying person without humor. I actually cultivated a, a sense of humor I didn't have before that. It was invaluable. <laughs> so I very much appreciated that there are very funny parts of the book or, and not about funny things, but after a while, these, these kinds of experiences do have a, a kind of gallows humor aspect, I guess. Does that ring a bell for you or is your kind of humor a little different from that? Yeah, no, I think that that's right on. And I also think when you go through grief and loss, it, it kind of changes you and it changes your perspective. I mean, not kind of changes you, it really changes you, but it changes your perspective <laughs> on um, life. So you just start kind of noticing like, you know, the, the weird things people say. I mean, we, we have a section on that of kind of breaking down 
the things people say to you after a pregnancy loss, like, oh, at least you can get pregnant. And you're kind of thinking like, yeah, and then the baby died. Like, what are you saying? Like, that's <laughs> so I mean, kind of breaking down like the ridiculous things people say to sort of avoid the um, discomfort of grief. Um, so yeah, I mean, and I think you kind of have to have a sense of humor just to like keep yourself going. It's like a survival mechanism. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe not right at first. No, not <laughs> I think at first. it took me a couple yeah. of years of the 10 to yeah. start seeing anything funny about it. But yes, yeah, <laughs> eventually yeah, yeah. it was like, we are in the most ridiculous situation here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know? And, uh, it got funnier as time went on. <laughs> yeah. I think you have to find those little those little things. And um, at least I did. That, that's, that's my experience. <laughs> well, I think that would be comforting too, because you're extremely honest in the book, all of you, um, you know, down and dirty, I guess I want to say. Um, and the humor helps that in my mind, the two go together. So, so nicely. Yeah. You really get the book. I'm, that makes me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad. I'm glad it fits your perception of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, could you? Um, who do I want to ask this? So, one of the, the the chapters. I think this is for you, Meredith and Hong. Um, the the chapter on uh, all the feelings is called shock, guilt, shame, loneliness, anger, despair, anxiety. We could probably go on. Uh, I had a teacher, Stephen Levine, who uh, used to say when a feeling would come up, when he'd be talking uh, about a feeling, he'd say, yeah, that's one of the top 40. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like the the hip parade. He had a good sense of humor too. But um, I wondered if you could... You know, in my mind, grief is this cacophony of feelings all over the place, sometimes two at once or five at once or none. Or um, How did you particularly decide to include those feelings in the chapter on feelings? Maybe, Meredith, why don't you start and yeah. Hong add uh, or the other way around, either way. Yeah, I'll start. Um well, I, I think in, ter- in practical terms, we were really looking at Kim's experience, like the, the hit parade of what, how she could group those feelings. And then from there, kind of sussing out the intricacies of how they might manifest, how they look. And when I was writing, I was thinking, um, oh, it's so important that people understand, like you can cycle through several feelings in a moment and what's always bothered me is when someone says to you oh just calm down like just calm down and focus on one it's like no I mean part of grief is really just being able to experience the flood which is a flood and then after you feel it to kind of assess where am I what am I going to do like this next indicated step and then just understand that you're going to do that probably all over again for a while until you notice that it's not quite so intense or it's not quite so immediate. You can hold off the tears for five minutes and then for 10 and then till the end of the day. So I think we really started looking like Kim really used her experience to help us shape 
what we were going to include, and then we just extrapolated from there. Hong, what what about you? Um, I was interested that when at one point in the book you were talking about um, BIPOC and queer people and um, how maybe some people would feel pressure to to get by really fast. Other people would feel, based on our experiences and our cultural environment and everything, some people might feel like, um, you know, my hands, I'm in the hands of God. This, you know, I don't have to feel anything about, there's so many different um, uh, beliefs we have that then affect how we feel. Yes. Yes. Yes, definitely. And so I think, you know, I wanted to kind of just go ahead and go back to some basics of things that I wish I think some of us um, don't learn as kids or just the basic, you know, emotions, right? And then I, um, I'm sure you saw that I included, we included the feelings wheel in there, which I think yes. has like some 80 something emotions, right? Um, that I think, yeah, we can all, we feel all 86 at the same time, I believe. And so I think part of what I really wanted to do in the book and that I do in my own practice is just a lot of education and validation and of looking at understanding emotions and feelings for what they are and being able to hold multiple emotions. So it's the both and instead of the either or, because I think for a lot of folks of not understanding, oh, you can feel both sad and grateful. You can feel both anger um, and humor, right? And speaking of humor that, you know, it's kind of seen as one of the most evolved, you know, defense mechanisms, you know, out there as a protective <laughs> thing, right? And so, and then, so if you ask, so if we look at the basics of emotions and feelings, and then we add on the cultural, you know, layer and the values, right, that through different cultures and families, even that they're going to view emotions, you know, very differently. So maybe, um, within one culture, it's very um, encouraged to really feel the emotions and to express the emotions um, viscerally, orally, you know, whatnot. And maybe in some other cultures, um, it's seen as very shameful or um, dramatic to express emotions. So I think for me, I'm always trying to understand f people's experiences through their own lens and through their development to not pathologize and to say like, yeah, you're having a certain emotional reaction. How does it typically, or how have you learned, right? Or not learned to a feel like viscerally feel in your body, this emotion, right? Cause the word emotion has the word motion in it. So it's something to be felt and to be experienced. And I always remind people the only way to get through, um, the only way out of an emotion is through an emotion, but all, but so many of us were not taught to, to, and um, have learned to numb our emotions. And so then what happens is that certain emotions get stuck. And so we're sort of stuck in this cycle where we, we have not, um, seen an emotion through. So I think what I try to do in the book or did in the book and just in my clinical practice is um, really just helping people to to understand that emotions are just signposts for um, things that are going on. So anger is a signpost that a boundary, you know, has been violated. Sadness is a signpost that you lost something. And so seeing that not fearing the emotion and knowing that, you know, we're all strong enough to handle whatever the emotions are that comes up. What happens that hurts us even more oftentimes is we judge ourselves 
for having these emotions and labeling certain emotions as good or bad. So part of my work is really be like, let's just welcome it all in and see what comes up and being curious about our emotions instead of judging our emotions. You know, we are still in this global pandemic space, (laughs) all of us. And um, I've noticed that my clients who have gone through a very deep uh, loss and learned to feel feelings, I have done a lot better than the people that I'm working with who are more inclined to how can I make this all better? And And the ones that are inclined that way, I despite my best efforts, uh, have had to learn to do it during this time. And um, I haven't felt like I had to learn that. (laughs) I don't know if that's true for you, Kim, but uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to have a lot of grief and I'm going to have all kinds of different feelings and uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to miss people. I'm going to want things. I'm going to feel isolated, you know. It's going to come in and it's going to go out. It, it hasn't disturbed me in the way that it has disturbed a lot of people that I encounter. Um, maybe yeah. that's... No, that I, I, I get that. I, I was just actually talking to Hong recently about how you sort of get to see your grief skills in action <laughs> when you're <laughs> faced with like another hard time. Um, because I, I didn't really know all that I had really absorbed and like integrated into who I am based on what I went through with my losses until the past year, really, where I kind of saw, oh, you know, going through those losses kind of gave me like a confidence in my resilience there. I just don't feel the same level of fear. And I feel kind of more like I can flow with whatever comes my way. Um, I also feel like before my losses, I felt kind of like naive and immune to tragedy. Like I just you know, so I, I think now go, going through what I went through, especially with, you know, so many of the things I went through were so statistically unlikely um, that I just, I just kind of, nothing surprises me. <laughs> <laughs> I just sort of take life as it comes in like a very liberating way. Um, I think I used to be a much more like clenched fist kind of person. And I mm-hmm. feel like more just sort of like, well, hey, what do we have before us? How do we go about dealing with this? You've been through this hard stuff before. You survived. You know, doesn't mean that the hard times now or in the future are not still hard. But there's of just like a not. different, right. different. Um, it doesn't feel as, um, I guess, viscerally like heavy. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, it totally makes sense. And uh, what, it, what it caused me to think about is that uh, it's a great example of feeling more than one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, this, this past year, I've been so grateful for those 10 years where I learned how to be with my experience. But I'm not grateful that my wife died. Right. Of course. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, it was 25 years ago. I don't, yeah. you know, I don't have intense moments as often, but I'll never be grateful about that. So I have to hold both. And I'm guessing that's probably true of you as well. Oh, yeah. I've, I've gained like a lot of meaning, and um, you know, since my losses. And um, I know they added that as a stage of grief, like finding meaning. And I, I, that like resonated with me a lot because I, I think I did learn a lot um, 
from my losses. And I'm, I'm like really grateful for those lessons, but I'm not grateful. I lost the babies. I mean, I still think of them and, you know, wonder who they would have been. And, um, all of that is still there, but I, I also feel like I've grown so much and had, um, you know, that uh, Hong and Meredith introduced me to the term post-traumatic growth. And I feel like I've really learned to live that. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, I just think I've, I'm just a better person um, because one, of one thing I One thing I do love about the people who coined that phrase is that they're really, really clear that it doesn't take the trauma away. Right. That it's two paths. And that's kind of exactly what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, I think it's also the difference between people like attempting to throw a silver lining on your experience. That's not the same thing as like growing. Like I remember people would say, you know, you're so strong, you'll, you'll grow from this. And they were saying that in the beginning when I was grieving and I'm like, that felt really empty and not at all validating. Like you have to find meaning in your own time, in your own way. And I don't think just like lobbing over this promise of growth is helpful. Um, it's kind of like a personal thing that you sort of figure out in your own time. And I don't think anyone like can rush you through that or hit you with the toxic positivity of like, you'll be fine. Everything will be good. You know, I, it's just, yeah, it's not helpful. <laughs> and, and even the stages thing, I'm, I'm smiling to myself. I've mentioned this on the show before. I interviewed Ken Ross, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's son. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, I, I'm so happy to get to ask you what's with the stages because it makes it seem like it goes in order. Yeah. And here's what he said. Well, when she wrote the book, she was not a very good English speech speaker. And she went to the dictionary, and, she, and that was the closest she could come to what she meant in her mind. But she never, never thought of it as this ordered process. American culture made that out of it, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, love, I love that story. I share it as often as possible. It's also not surprising that American culture would do that because we do like kind of prescribed steps. We want everything to be very linear and you start here and you get this. And <laughs> and especially if something is scary, um, because a lot, uh, a lot of what you wrote about in terms of intersecting with, with um, communities and friends and circles of people was really about what I would call grief deflection. Uh, it'll be okay, or you'll grow, or you'll have another, whatever it is that kind of says, don't come to me with the messiness of this. Yes, yes. yes. Like, please just move on. And um, let's think ahead to the next positive thing and not get swept up in this negativity. And if you want to, if you do want to talk about how you're sad, that's just dwelling on it. That's just, you know, kind of like, I don't want to hear that. And I think now I have more compassion for those responses because to me it just says, wow, you are really uncomfortable with grief. And um, I feel bad for that. Like I feel kind of bad, but um, not that it still doesn't annoy me, but, um, but I, I, I don't feel <laughs> as um, that angry anymore. <laughs> well, you've got your skin back on maybe. <laughs> you know, I feel, I've, I feel as if there's a layer of skin that's missing in an early grief place. And everything just gets right in. There's no, there's no barrier. Time for our second break already. Listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com. You can go to the Good Grief host page, and there's links to everything. And 
to find my guests in their book, you can go to alltheloveafterloss.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent. Inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Kim Hooper, Meredith Resnick, and Hong Depp about their new book, All the Love. Healing Your Heart and Finding Meaning After Pregnancy Loss. And uh, in the last segment, when we were kind of talking about the wrong things that people say. And um, out of fear of grief, out of fear of big, big messy feelings, and, and out of not knowing what to say. And so uh, I'd love to hear from each of you a couple of things that you find helpful that people can say. Because... Uh, as you mentioned in the book, saying nothing is also pretty hurtful, <laughs> you know, in early grief. Um, but knowing what to say is not always clear to people. Um, Hong, maybe you could, you could start. What are a couple of things that you, your clients, for instance, have, have found helpful that have pe- people have said to them? Yeah, I think um, for my clients, um, a lot of them, what they find helpful is just, you know, it's very similar to Brene Brown's work of the difference between empathy, you know, versus sympathy, that I think it's the idea of, you know, somebody really trying to to put on their empathy hat and that they, while they may not have experienced pregnancy loss themselves, we've all experienced some kind of, you know, loss and trauma. So I think the, you know, even for some of my clients, they've mentioned that even if someone's just like, you know, I, you know, I'm af- I think being vulnerable themselves, like I'm, I'm afraid of saying the wrong things. Like I don't really know what exactly to say. Um, but I just want to let you know that like, I'm here for you and to make space. Right. And I think part of this is knowing a little bit of like what the other, how the other person, a little bit of their love language, right. Which I think I'm like, Oh, I wonder if there's like a grief language that is out there that, cause I think even with Kim, you know, we've kind of posthumously go back, uh, went back and been like, Oh, like, was there anything else I could have done for you as a friend, you know, all those years ago? And I think her and I, we used to write letters back and forth all the time, even when there was the internet. And so I think she was like, oh, 
you know, I think um, even if over texting and calls, that wasn't something that maybe, you know, she was open to at that time or other people. But, you know, I think in terms of cards or, you know, there's so many ways to show, you know, love and, you know, um, wanting to be there, you know, for a person. So again, culturally as well, because I want to always try to bring in the culture that for some cultures, it's not through words, it's through actions. You know, like I know for my parents, it's always like if there is any kind of grief that happens in the community, it's like we're cooking up a storm, you know, ready. Like you're the food. <laughs> in the many communities, huh? Many communities, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like food is just, I'm like, all right, I, you know, you um, definitely, you know, you can worry about everything else, but you're not going to have to worry about food, right? So I think, too, I think that's just something that I really want to pay respect and homage to as well is that oftentimes, um, it's not just through the words, it's, it's through our actions. It's just through being there. It's through sitting over a person, even through their yuckiness of their feelings and that, but it really does require us to be able to hold space and have maybe had some experience of sitting through our own yuckiness as well. I know you mentioned one of my, my one of my fave books, uh, There's No Good Card for This in your, mm-hmm. in your book. And uh, what I like about that book, many things, but one thing I like is, they kind of say, pick something that's easy for you to do and do it repeatedly. I really think that's wise. Um, you know, if it's, I, I have a client whose daughter died and she she actually went to where her daughter lived and, and stayed there for months. And a per, a, an acquaintance, almost friend, not quite, she just regularly once a week texted, I'm thinking about you. That's all she did. But Mm -hmm. she did it every week for the whole time. And this person said it was the most meaningful thing anyone did. And it didn't take a lot out of her, but she felt uh, out of the, the, the sender, but she felt that someone had her held in some way that other people didn't hold her. I thought, you know, that was a good example. What about you, Meredith? Um, what do you think? I mean, obviously, we can say, I'm crap at this. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I've never had that loss, but I care about you. You know, it's okay to admit that we don't know what to say, I think. I always appreciate a good swear word, too. <laughs> I'm crap at this is great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I one thing that I did want to say is that one thing that it's a maybe a not to do and that would be maybe don't ask a lot of questions my experience has been that people uh, they feel bad but they also have this desire to just know the whole story too and I think some of that is a protective um, like a defense almost like if I can figure out what happened then I can remember and not do that or tell my whoever. I mean, it doesn't work that way. So I would caution, like, don't ask a lot of questions. I I recently wrote um, an article for Social Work Today, and I interviewed uh, someone at the USC School of Social Work, and she said even about social workers in the hospital, don't go asking the patient questions, re-injuring them, like read the chart and go from there. So I'd say for a friend, it would be just show up, send a text, um, try to draw on your knowledge of that person and what they might like, Uh, send a gift, send a package, send a note, send a text, 
um, share with them that you're thinking about them, remembering a time when you spoke and look forward to doing that whenever they're ready. Um, just letting them know that you want to be there in the way that they need. I think that's really, uh, it, you may have to be very spontaneous, but that's part of this. It's, you're, there is no one perfect thing to say. Um, so that can take the pressure off, but don't ask a lot of questions. Sure. And then given the complexity of, uh, Hong, you were talking about taking into account the person's love language, but I know that in grief, I was really different than I, than I was at other times. And so even if someone knew me well, they might very well get it wrong. Maybe it's partly the, the agreement that you could get it wrong and that's okay. You know, that wrongness is not a sin or something. But I think, Kim, oh, yeah, I was going to say along those lines, like I think going through the loss as the person going in, in grief, like you feel so vulnerable already. So it kind of helps to have somebody else be vulnerable and even say like, I don't know if this is the right thing, but I would love to make you dinner. Can You know, like, can I bring you dinner? I can just leave it at the doorstep, whatever you want. Like just admitting, I don't know the right thing to say or do, or, uh, you know, I, I, I want to ask the baby's name, but I don't know if that's the right thing or, you know, just kind of being vulnerable and saying like, I, I care about you. I'm not really sure if I'm doing this right. I'm just so sorry for your loss. Like I'm, I'm just really, I'm, I'm thinking of you. And I, I, I always appreciate that vulnerability from others to, to kind of like match or mirror how vulnerable I already feel. I feel um, that's, that's really important that that kind of message uh, as opposed to the ones, oh, you'll you'll have another baby or, you know, those kind of futuristic, it's all going to be okay things. The ones where someone said, I don't know what to do, but I care about you or can I bring yeah. in, those are the ones that hit for you. Yeah, for me, that, that felt good is, is to just, um, because I also felt very lost. I'm like, I don't know what I want you to do either. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I don't know what I want to do. And I just let's all just admit we don't really know how to do this well. And there's no perfect, like you said, there's no like absolute right or wrong thing. And to just be human and not pretend to have the answer or not pretend to think like, Oh, it'll all be better when you have another baby or just, just be open to like, we don't know if it's going to be better. We don't know if you're even going to have another baby. We have no idea. Um, and just, I guess being open and honest about that scariness. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. That's kind of what I've appreciated whenever somebody's interacted with me during grief. And you went into a lot of depth about um, both the impact on a relationship and the difficulties in a relationship. If you're in one, mm -hmm. uh, there are different, different things that happen if you're single and experiencing that. Um, but <laughs> you don't even know what to do for each other, right? <laughs> I, yeah. uh, you and your husband didn't exactly know how to support each other. Yeah. And so, of course, other people don't know. <laughs> exactly. Yes, of course. <laughs> it's yeah. no big surprise, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, even the most intimate people in your life may not know. So, yeah, I mean, of course, a, a, an acquaintance or a friend that you don't see that often, they're not going to know, you know, the exact right thing to say. And um, I have more compassion for that now. But, um, you know, it's it's hard to hear the wrong things. And I think people just don't have enough um coaching on what the right things are. So it's good you asked this. <laughs> <laughs> but I do recommend 
recommend that book. I, yeah, I think it's great. I've I've printed out that page with the I think it's six you know non-listening strategies, uh, and had my clients give that page to the people in their lives yeah. many times because none of us really are trained on what to say, and uh, most of us learn it because we're in a terrible situation and we know what then works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, if we just listen to our culture, that's where you hear all of the toxic positivity. So it's kind of hard if you're around, you know, a culture that's not really openly talking about grief, then you really don't have examples that of, you know, how to best comfort somebody. I think we're still in the, you know, um, the terrible grief part of COVID to some degree, but I do think that there's been uh, an opening of conversation because everyone went through loss all at the same time. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so there's been maybe a little more interest broadly in talking about what people need when they're having struggles. Do you yeah. think so? I agree. And I know Hong agrees with that. We've talked about that. I mean, I know early on in the pandemic, David Kessler wrote something about, you know, that thing you're feeling is grief. And I right. felt like that like brought a lot of attention, like you said, collectively to grief that we're all collectively feeling that um, maybe people didn't know how to identify. Yeah. Um, and, I'm, and I'm also using COVID as a catch-all because there is also George Floyd's death. Yes. Um, you know, the the um, activism and, and um, heartbreak of all that. So maybe we can say that it's experience that teaches us about what people need in grief. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Any last words? We have just a minute left. What, what, um, what might people do? Well, let me say this. You you are accepting uh, stories, yes? Is that on your website? You um, We don't have that going on yet, but we were talking about doing that at some point in the future. Okay. But I always I welcome, be- I, I have people that email me, um, you know, to connect and talk. And we talk about doing events. Like we had one online event already as like a support type thing. And so um, we will probably do another um, but people can follow us on social media. Um, we're at All the Love Talk on Twitter and Instagram. So any events or anything we do will be announced there. All the Love Talk? Mm-hmm. Is that what you said? Yeah. Great to know. Yeah. I've really enjoyed this. And I, I hope people, I hope the right people find your book. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you for, for bringing this topic to everyone's attention. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, to find my guests in their book, you can go to alltheloveafterloss.com. Next week, I'll have Mike Bernhardt. We'll be talking about his book, Voices of the Grieving Heart. It's a collection of poetry, his own and other people's, that he brought together after the death of his first wife. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.